0: friends, and welcome back to another episode of Faith and UU, the podcast for everyone. My name is Reverend McKinley Sims, and I serve at the UU Church of the Restoration in Mount Airy in beautiful Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and it is in the middle of February. Snow is expected here, and we are moving along, moving along here in the city of brotherly love, sisterly affection, and sibling service. I wanted to throw a pod up here because I've been fielding some questions from some folks on my views as a Christian on homosexuality and how we are to love our siblings who identify on the LGBTQ community and how we can better serve one another in this love. So I've been thinking about this topic and how to address it and thinking about my own story and my own uh, personal connections to folks who are gay and lesbian. And for me it starts, if you didn't know, that I grew up in the most conservative part of Texas, in West Texas, in the Panhandle. And growing up in that kind of culture, in a conservative Christian culture, you get one message about LGBT folks. And that is that they are bad, that they are sinful, that they are wrong. And I was thinking about this, I don't really know if I ever... Heard that expressly in church, or in Sunday school, or through parents, or, or maybe it was just kind of by osmosis from the fringes. I, I can't remember if I ever heard a sermon on it or not. I, I just knew that it was different. It was supposedly not the norm. It was sexualized. Sex is always bad. So I, I grew up anti-gay, for sure, um, up through high school. And I definitely used slurs, used the F-word, didn't want to be viewed as the F-word, didn't want to be viewed as weak, Um, viewed gay folks as sinful, because that's what I was taught. And it was discrimination by osmosis or pop culture, I don't know. But it was definitely there. And part of it is not knowing any better. But that's not an excuse now. Now we know better, right? But when I was in high school, I've been trying to think about if there was a point where maybe I turned towards a more liberal and progressive understanding, a more loving understanding of this. And I was trying to think. And for me, going to school at Lubbock High School, home of Buddy Holly in Lubbock, Texas, was one of the first schools in the panhandle to have a gay straight alliance. And that didn't really mean anything to me. I just knew we had it and it was fine. But it really upset some people from the Westboro Baptist Church who came all the way to Lubbock, Texas to picket in front of my high school in my hometown with my friends. And it pissed me off. And I just couldn't imagine why they were so angry and why they were they so hurtful. And so then I had to sit back and examine my own biases and think, well, did I used to think like that? And Yeah. I think I did. I don't think I ever would have tried to pick it in front of someone's school, but I was here for the rebellion at that point. I was in high school. I was ready to rage against the machine, and now it became personal. And I started to hear rumors about people who might be gay in my high school and whether or not someone was out or not, I don't don't know. But just the fact that they were coming after my high school and my friends, it became personal for me. And I think the compassion for the folks who were in the closet, for how they were bullied or oppressed, that started to pop up in me too. That I started to, to want to champion and protect and stand up for those who couldn't stand up for themselves. Right? So there's a little bit of a white savior complex in that. And I've had to let some of that go and um, step back and be more of an accomplice Uh, rather than try and lead these charges, but that's where it started for me. And I remember thinking, how do I reconcile my faith, Christianity, with what these people are saying? And at the same time, I was reading this story about the Rainbow Man. Do you know who the Rainbow Man is? Roland Stewart, who in the 70s and into the 80s was known as the Rainbow Man. And he was this guy who would go to all these major sporting events wearing a t-shirt that said Jesus Saves with a rainbow-colored fro on his head and a giant sign that said John 316. And he would show up at NFL games and baseball games and NBA games. He'd be behind home plate. He'd be behind the goalposts. He'd be courtside. Always with this sign, John 316 and the Rainbow Fro, and people called him Rainbow Man. And his thing was, he was spreading the gospel, right? John 3.16, if you don't know, is the verse from the Gospel of John that says, For God so loved the world that God gave God's only begotten Son, so that everyone who believes in God may not perish but have eternal life. Pretty famous. So Rainbow Man would go around to all these sporting events and hold at this sign, and people who knew it thought it was cool, and people who didn't know it would look it up. And so he was kind of spreading this message of love. And I find it so interesting that he was wearing the rainbow fro to get noticed, for sure. But have that's become a symbol of LGBT rights in the LGBT community? Because the rainbow as a symbol also comes from the Hebrew scriptures, from the book of Genesis. The rainbow is God's promise to never again flood the earth after the supposed great flood with Noah. Noah, the ark, the animals, you know, the dove, all that. The rainbow is the end of the story. It's the promise in the sky that says, I will never again curse the ground because of humankind. For the inclination of the human heart is evil from youth. That's the eighth chapter of Genesis. God puts the rainbow in the sky, according to the story, to remind humans that, hey, y'all effed this up. Quit doing that. But never again am I going to flood the earth, curse the ground, be as involved. You guys broke it, you guys fix it. The rainbow is the promise of love, that God will be there regardless, but that it is up to us to do the fixing. So I wanted to take this time and push back on some Christians who cite two things as reasons for God to curse the world or to curse America right that was one of the big reasons for things like hurricane katrina for obama being elected president from the conservative right it was because of abortion and homosexuality gay marriage that's why god has cursed america so we need to make america great again if you read the book of genesis and you read about the rainbow that's god's promise to never again curse the ground So the idea of God cursing the world or cursing America because of abortion and homosexuality is just ludicrous, right? God's saying, hey, y'all don't need me to screw things up. You already did it yourselves. So things are messed up in our world. It has nothing to do with who we sleep with. But some people, in order to justify their bigotry, they turn to the Hebrew and Christian scriptures to try and use what are called the clobber verses against the LGBTQ community. So I want to go over those today and dive into them a little bit and provide an alternate reading, an alternate pronunciation about what I see when I read them. And there are two ways to think here, right? You can read the Bible literally as if every single word is true, or you can read it literately like it's a book or a collection of books, some really good books written by humans. We're going to try and do both today. So you may think that homosexuality is made such a big deal of by the conservative Christian right that it must be everywhere in their Bible, but it's really not. So the so-called clobber verses, and I'm leaning on the work of Dr. Ralph Blair here of Evangelicals Concerned. The clobber verses are, number one, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 19, this is the story a lot of people point to and uh, say, look, a town was burned down because of uh, gay people. People were committing homosexual acts and God threatened to destroy the town. Okay? Sodom and Gomorrah. That's where the word Sodomite comes from. We'll touch on that in a second. Number two, the purity code of Leviticus, chapters 18 and 20. Two verses that say, a man lying with a man is an abomination. You should not lie. as a woman with a woman or a man with a man. Blah, 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 It's called the Purity Code in the book of Leviticus. Number three, there is a passage in Deuteronomy that in the King James translation of the Bible refers to sodomites. It is totally mistranslated, but if you want to know, it's Deuteronomy 23, 17. There shall be no whore of the daughters of Israel, nor a sodomite of the sons of Israel. So the problem here is that the word sodomite Is not the word sodomite. The Hebrew there is kadeshah and kadesh, which means holy or sacred. So I don't know what Kim James was talking about. Number four, Paul's letter to the Romans. Number five, Paul's letter to the Corinthians. Number six, Paul's possible letter to a guy named Timothy. These are three letters from the Apostle Paul about people who, quote unquote, practice homosexuality, claiming that they are somehow outside of God's love. The problem here is that the one to Timothy is considered pseudo-Pauline, first and second letters to Timothy. We don't know that it was the Apostle Paul. It might have been someone using his name, or if you follow Bart Ehrman's work, it might just be a complete forgery. And that's it. Six verses. Genesis, Leviticus, not really Deuteronomy, Romans, 1 Corinthians, maybe 1 Timothy. And that's it. Six verses out of 23,000 in the Hebrew and Christian scriptures. Think about that, and how much weight they carry, and how much harm they've caused from six verses. So let's dive in, shall we? The story in Genesis, Genesis is the first book in the Hebrew scriptures, the Torah, talks about Sodom and Gomorrah. So you may or may not know the story, but basically, there's a man named Lot who lives in a town called Sodom. And the men of the city are notorious for committing rape on unsuspecting people. Two angels come to visit Lot, and he welcomes them in, as he's supposed to do. He's a part of the Middle East code of hospitality. You're supposed to welcome strangers in. He gives them food, gives them drink, a place to stay. He treats them as guests, treats them very well. And outside... The men of Sodom come to knock on the door because they hear there's newcomers and they start harassing Lot and his guests and they threaten violence. And they want to commit sexual assault against the newcomers. In response, the visitors, who turn out to be angelic beings, blind the men of Sodom, the Sodomites, when they attempt to hurt Lot, even after Lot offers up his own family members his daughters, to the men instead. So there's problems with that that we could get into, but Lot is doing everything he can to be a good host to keep these men from harm, these angelic beings. Later, the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah are almost burned to the ground, threatened, presumably because of the homosexual affront. So the problem with this story is that the greatest affront to God in this story is not that it's homosexual, It's that these men, these sodomites, are attempting to betray the code of hospitality of the Near East. That they're not treating outsiders with respect. They're not being good hosts. They want to commit violence on these men. It's not about gay folks here, right? Gay people have been around for a long time. If we're talking about consensual sex, that's not what we're talking about. This is about rape. This is about power, this is about control, this is about non-consent and violence. The Sodomites angered God because they didn't treat outsiders with hospitality. They were going to assault guests of Lot. And that goes against everything that is right and decent in the ancient world. You take care of guests, you welcome guests in. So this is a story about the abuse of power by men and their use of sex as a weapon. Right. This is a story that we know all too well. It's not about being gay. It's the same story that leads to one in five college women surviving attempted rape in America. It's a story about power and control, about sexual assault and not being a good neighbor, not being a good host. That's what the story of Sodom and Gomorrah is about. And if you don't believe me, we can go to the scriptures because the prophet Ezekiel speaks openly about the sin of Sodom. In the book of Ezekiel, chapter 16, verses 48 and 49, As I live, says the Lord God, this was the sin of your sister city of Sodom. She and her suburbs had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not help or encourage the poor and needy. They were arrogant, and this was abominable in my eyes." To have enough and not to share, to treat others with disrespect, to not be a good neighbor, a good host, this is what it means to be sinful. Puts a whole new spin on that story, doesn't it? Let's move on. Leviticus, the Purity Code. Two verses here, chapter 18, verse 22, and chapter 20, verse 13. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman, it is an abomination. If a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. Okay, let's take the literal reading. The word abomination, toeva, that's a cultic term, per Ralph Blair. Talks about things that are ritually unclean, right? Leviticus is the story of what is clean and unclean, and how do we follow this purity code to make ourselves clean before God? So there are all these rules about what you can eat, what you can't, how you should wash, when you should wash, who you can touch, who you shouldn't touch. And it's all about ritual clean and ritually unclean. Right? It's all religious theological. It's not moral or ethical. Right? The idea of homosexuality as we know it today, they wouldn't have been able to conceive of that. Right? The Holiness Code prescribes men saying that if you mix these roles, if a man lies with a man or a woman lies with a woman, you, you're polluting the, the cleanliness, right? That was the old Hebrew reading. If you follow the Christian tradition, Jesus and Paul both reject such ritual distinctions, this idea of cleanliness. It's not what's on the outside, but what's on the inside that matters. So that's a literal reading, right? The literate reading, because most of Leviticus' laws aren't followed anymore, we could write it off right there. But well, let's dig a little deeper. This is written in a specific time and place, right? The book of Leviticus written by humans to humans. A time when they remember being a small group of people wandering homeless in the desert. Possibly written during the Babylonian exile of the Hebrew people. It's a story about being away from home, trying to hold on to your roots, and trying to find a new home. So if you were the leaders of a small group of people wandering homeless in the desert, as the Israelites are said to be doing during this time when Leviticus refers. If your small group of people's population was dwindling, if your people's survival was in question, what would you be looking for signs from God that would tell you to do? Or what would you tell your followers that God has asked you to do? You might outlaw things that are not going to help your people survive right? You might outlaw sex that doesn't create babies, and you'd outlaw abortion, right? In the Torah, they outlaw one and not the other. And I'll let you figure out which is which, because that's really interesting. So we have the Old Testament, and then we have the New Testament as Christians call it. So we go on to Paul's letters to the Romans, So I want to preface this with a little bit about Paul, right? Paul is a Jewish guy, a Hebrew of Hebrews, he says. He knows the laws of Leviticus. He knows the Holiness Code. He used to persecute folks, especially Christians, for not following the Holiness Code. He lives in a world of the Roman citizen. Paul's land, Paul's people, the Hebrews, are under Roman occupation. Paul has this encounter with who he believes to be Jesus A man killed by the Roman occupation. The man that Paul believes to be God incarnate was murdered through capital punishment by the greatest military superpower the world has ever known. So Paul comes to this with a perspective. He does not like the Roman occupation. He does not like the pagan Romans. He takes advantage of being a citizen of Rome. He used to help persecute um, Jewish citizens at the behest of the Romans. And then he's had this transformation, this change of heart. But Paul wants his people to be opposite of the pagan Romans. Paul believes that his church, the church to which he belongs, needs to separate themselves. The Romans are notorious for having homosexual relations, either consensual or non-consensual master-slave relations. The Romans are notorious for raping and plundering and conquering. The Romans are notorious for using sex as a weapon of power between older men and younger boys. And Paul just might equate all this together. Right? Roman men sleep with men, sleep with boys. The Romans are bad people well aka men who sleep with men are bad people that's one way to look at it the other way to look at it is that Paul talks about in the book of Romans degrading passions where women exchange their natural intercourse for unnatural and in the same way men giving up natural intercourse with women were consumed with passion for one another these shameless acts committed Romans 128 since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind and to things that should not be done. So we have the one reading. that Paul doesn't like the Romans. The Romans killed Jesus. Paul likes Jesus. He doesn't want the Christians to be like the Romans. Anything the Romans do is bad. So we shouldn't be like them. The other reason is that Paul likes Jesus and Paul likes God. And Paul's God, the God of the Hebrews, the God of the Israelites, has a different kind of ritual worship, a different kind of sacrifice structure, a different kind of prayer structure. Paul lives in a world of the Roman occupation and the Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire is made up of many different pagan religions and some folks who are Jewish and some folks who are part of this burgeoning new movement, the Jesus movement. So when Paul talks about pagan women exchanging natural use for unnatural use, he's thinking of particular people. Folks who serve Aphrodite at Corinth, folks who serve Dionysus, folks who serve Sibylle, Aphrodite, Ishtar, the Syrian goddesses, the temple of Artemis at Ephesus, where males voluntarily castrate themselves, wear women's garments. This is all theological for Paul. It doesn't have anything to do with morals or ethics. It's about idolatry, an ideology and a religious system that is not part of Paul's Christian focus. Right? If he wanted to say something about men laying with men or women laying with women to the church, he'd have said it. Right? He's very specific on some things. But Paul is against idolatry. Paul is against people not honoring God in the way that Paul thinks they ought to, in the way that he's experienced from his road to Damascus moment. So the letters to Corinthians and Timothy, they use two very specific words, are and malakoi, that often get translated as homosexuals or people who practice homosexual activity. Right? But Romans is about priests, priestesses, who have given up doing good and right things in order to put their minds on things that are not God. It's a condemnation of religious leaders who are only thinking about themselves and not thinking about their higher power or the people whom they serve. So when we get to 1 Corinthians and Timothy, letter to Timothy, we don't think that Paul wrote it. Corinthians, we're pretty sure. This word, arsenikoitai, I think that's how you pronounce it. It usually gets translated as homosexuals, but funnily enough, this is the first time that anyone has ever used this word in Greek. There's no other usages, surviving examples of people using this word, so we're not really sure if it means what it means, right? And if it does refer to homosexual activity, Paul had to create this word. So he's probably only thinking of pederasts, right? The Roman. Power people, usually men, who have enslaved people, usually boys, to commit sexual acts on. This is about unequal power balance. This is the same story as the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. This is about men with power using sex as a weapon to intimidate, to oppress, to enslave. That's what I see when I read this. It doesn't have anything to do with consensual homosexual relationships between men, between women, between gender non-binary people. This is about how human beings can use power and control, can use sex as a weapon to create this hierarchy where there haves and there have-nots, to create this idolatrous lifestyle where they're not thinking about the other, they're not thinking about the poor, they're not thinking about the needy. They're thinking about their own pleasure and their own views. That's what I see when I read these verses. All six of them. Out of 23,000. The most often the problem is not with the kind of sexual relationship. Right? It's about the why. It's not the who. I think that our views on homosexuality, we read them back in. We try and put our modern notions of sexuality and sexual ethics back onto a time where we don't fully understand, right? So when I talk about reading this literally, you read these things and they say, well, a man shouldn't lie with a man. That's an abomination. Well, that made sense to the Israelites back then, just like the passages from Leviticus about not eating shellfish Makes sense to the Israelites back then, right? It's about separating yourself. It's about making sure your people survive, right? Funnily enough, the thing about shellfish—it's kind of a weird proclamation. You can't eat shellfish. The Philistines, another people the ancient Near East, uh, the people of Goliath, fame, David and Goliath. Goliath was a Philistine. The Philistines were famous for being fishermen and shellfish eaters. They are also famous for being the sworn enemies of the Israelites. If you were an enemy of the Philistines, you might tell your people, we're not going to eat the same things as them. Have a little pride in yourself, kids. Don't eat those shellfish. And now it's become law, right? That's how it works. It comes down to whether you believe that the Bible has something to teach us today exactly as it's written or that we have to interpret what's written through time, through translation. And all translation is interpretation. But I believe if God can work through scientific revelation, if God can work through texts that are more than 2,000 years old, if God can work through people like me and you, as I believe that God can, why not? Maybe people got it wrong. Maybe now we understand it better. Maybe now we're feeling the promise of the rainbow that everyone is welcome, that no one is beyond love, that no one is beyond grace, that never again is the land curse. Maybe that's what we're supposed to take from this. I, for one, as a Unitarian Universalist, as a Christian minister, I, for one, take God at God's word. When God says, the rainbow is there forever. The promise that God's love remains because humans don't need any help effing up the ground or the world in which we live. We screw things up pretty well on ourselves. But when we do screw things up, when we fail to treat each other with respect, with dignity, with compassion, when we fail to care for the sick and the needy, the poor, the widow, when we fail to see the rainbow, as the symbol of the beautiful swath of humanity that is the LGBTQ movement? When we fail to see that as the real blessing for showing us how wrong we've been when we've used these clobber verses, when we've used slur words, when we've drawn lines and labeled those as others, as outside of God's love, we miss the mark. And if we only look at homosexuality In the Hebrew and Christian scriptures and we don't look at the power and the context behind it. It's like if we only look at racism here in America and not the power and the context behind it. We're going to continue to hurt one another and to not make amends. So what it comes down to is this. If you want to condemn homosexuality, fine, but condemn it when it's based on power and control to rape and intimidate, to not treat your neighbor well, because those are the real sins. And that can be homosexual, heterosexual, asexual, bisexual. Violence is violence. Power is power. And violence towards and the oppression of people who are not the mainstream, who are labeled the others, who are the outcasts outside of the mainstream society, those are the greatest sins in the Bible. The ones that are spoken to most often by the Hebrew prophets, by the Psalms, by Jesus so for me, as a Christian, when I think about the story of Jesus, the one who ate with sinners, who brought those on the margins in, the one who still bore scars of crucifixion in the stories of his resurrection, the scars are important to me because they are a reminder of just how much mistreatment of the other hurts God. It hurts enough to leave a mark. So my hope for you and for me is that we who are straight might embrace we who are gay because the rainbow shines above all of us. No one is beyond God's love for God so loved the whole world, the whole cosmos, the entire universe. In the story of Noah, the writer goes out of his way to name all the things, the birds of the air, the beasts of the ground, the things that slithered, the creepy, the crawlies, all of those are to be gathered onto the ark. All of those are to be saved. The whole world God loves. Even you. Even me. When we look up at the rainbow, we're reminded of that love, the love that encompasses all of which no one is left out. That's one of the heartbeats of universalism, of Unitarian Universalism, and of my belief and our hope for the future of the world. We are all loved. We are all beloved. And thank God for that. Amen. To hear more from McKinley, You can follow him on Twitter at McKinley L. Sims. Send him an email, mckinley.l.sims at gmail.com. Or find him on his blog, euministry.com backslash McKinley Sims.